Please now take your Bibles and open them to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue a series of sermons on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. And today we will see that played out in flesh and blood in this particular narrative. Um, I think it was Ralph David... Uh, Davis, Ralph Davis, who said chapters 24, 25, and 26 in 1 Samuel are like mozzarella cheese on a pizza pie. They all sort of melt and blend together. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at 
these chapters, two having to do with Saul, one having to do with Nabal and his wife Abigail. But today, we are in chapter 24. I'll read the entirety of chapter 24 uh, this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness in Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some said, uh, told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For, uh, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? 
So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we take time apart from our schedules and our lives to be in your presence and to sit under the preaching of your word, we do pray that both word and spirit will work in our hearts as you desire. And we pray that you would wake some of us up from our lethargy and our, our deadness and our uh, malaise and that you would bring some of us to life out of death and that you would encourage us and confront us and rebuke us and uh, say words that lift our hearts. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my children were small, uh, I had three girls, Mary, Megan, and Molly, uh, the M&Ms we used to call them. And uh, when I was in seminary, I was away from them all week, and then I would commute back home, and uh, every weekend I would tell them stories from the Bible, particularly stories that we had looked at in Old Testament in class. And so one of the stories that happened to be their very favorite was the story of Ehud and Eglon. Ehud was a left-handed Benjaminite, and Eglon was a huge, obese, fat king from Moab who had taken over Israel at that point. And so they loved me to tell this story over and over again. Every time I would get ready to tell the story, Dad, Dad, tell us about Eglon, tell us about Ehud. Why did they love this story? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Ehud was an assassin. Ehud snuck into the king's chambers and the king was on the roof in the catching the cool breeze and there was a restroom on the roof and so Eglon apparently was able to work his way into that area into the restroom and he had a dagger which was 18 inches long and he stabbed Eglon in the stomach and the fat of his stomach swallowed the whole night. This is in the Bible. But this is where my girls loved it the most. Because after Eglon stabs him, the old King James used to say, and the dirt came out. So they asked me, Dad, what is the dirt coming out? I said, well, it's dung. He was in the bathroom doing number two, is what I told them. And apparently when he stabbed him, uh, whatever difficulty he had was released the man was in that bathroom for quite a while his subjects were too afraid to go in after him for fear that he would have their lives and so as a result he was in there I don't know a couple of three days and it started to stink more than your normal bathroom and so they broke their way in and found him and by that time Ehud had gathered an army attacked the king of Moab totally undid them and he was a judge that God raised up to deliver Israel from their obsession with sin during the period of Judges. 
And you say, well, that's a nice story, Pastor Tim, and I'm glad you told your girls that. <laughs> but what in the world does that have to do with David being in the cave with Saul? Well, you will see. You will see what that story has to do. One of the things I've learned about Old Testament narratives in the Bible is they're pretty repetitive. You see a lot of the same things happening over and over. That's because God wrote it, and he controls the plot. So here, we know that David is a man after God's own heart. And these chapters show us that a man after Yahweh's own heart does not seize the kingdom. Yahweh promised it, but now David is waiting to receive that as a gift. With scarcely time to even take a breath, um, it's, it's amazing uh, we are dragged eastward from Maon to Engedi. And Engedi was an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea, favored with a perennial spring located several hundred feet up a very large cliff. Some of the old writers gave a pitch, picturesque and memorable description of the area, the sheepfolds in front of the caves and the caverns. Now let me tell you, there were hundreds of caves in this area. Isn't it ironic that Saul happens to go on the one David and his 600 men are in? It must have been a pretty good-sized cave. But that's what happened. And so our writer is abrupt with us. He doesn't give us any kind of report on Saul's pursuit of the Philistines. Apparently he won. But he doesn't give us any hint of the outcome. And in the written account, so quickly is Saul at David's throat again that even David may wonder if he had even enjoyed a breather. Saul is never without a scouting report. Hence, he comes after David near En Gedi with 3,000 of his top flight troops. Needing a restroom, the old King James said he was covering his feet, but what he was doing <laughs> was resting, but he was doing more than that. Saul was doing number two, okay? Just want to be as clear as I can with you. Why don't they put that in the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because a lot of people would be very alarmed at what the Hebrew actually says. <laughs> and when David cuts off his robe, you know, uh, and doesn't go for the jugular, cutting off the robe was symbolic of something very, very drastic. It was like taking away all of the manhood Saul possessed. That's a euphemism for that. So it was a symbol of taking someone who is powerful and rendering them vulnerable. But Saul's in a, in a very, very vulnerable position. I'm trying to be candid with you without being gross, and I don't know if I'm winning a, that fight, but I'm trying. And so Saul's in the cave, and the writer springs his surprise. David and his men were staying in the inner recesses of the cave, and he sets the scene with three quick verses and in the light of verse 3b, whatever happens can't fail to be anything but exciting. So first we see a test for Yahweh's servant, that is, David. When Saul relaxes, David and his men carry a spirited debate about the will of God for David's life. I never do really like too much to talk to other people about the will of God, and I'm, I'm extremely wary of someone who thinks they know the will of God for my life. You should be too. It is almost 
uh, as if David's men began singing a snip of that chorus, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Who could not see what God has brought about? It's got to be clear. Look, here is your day. Your time has arrived, David. Uh, uh, it's your time to shine. It's your time to take what is rightfully yours. You have been anointed as king of Israel. The kingdom has been taken away from Saul. All that stands between you and this is your sword. Now go to it. And they even went so far as to say about what Yahweh had said, See, I am giving your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you please. And it doesn't matter whether David's men are quoting a previous oracle of Yahweh or simply interpreting the present occasion. They can tell a stroke of providence when they see one, and one <laughs> doesn't need to go to Bible college or seminary to understand what Yahweh's up to in this situation according to his army. David's action follows. He cuts off a part of the edge of Saul's robe. Now, the robe is, is big in the whole life of David. For example, you remember the tearing of the robe from Samuel, signifying the forfeiture of the kingdom for Saul. Hence, David staked his claim to the kingdom that day in the cave when he removed a piece of, from Saul's robe. David's act may have been a symbolic declaration of revolt only such heavy symbolism explains David's remorse David's heart struck him why does his heart strike him because he knows what cutting off the robe of the king means it means taking away from him everything that distinguishes him as a man it is the destruction of his manhood and that's why David's conscience is stricken. That's why he's remorseful. And even the symbolic action had gone too far. David's action, and especially his grief, explained the principle, may Yahweh keep me from doing this thing to my Lord. Yahweh's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, for he is Yahweh's anointed. I have never heard a passage of scripture so misrepresented and misinterpreted as I have that verse. Don't touch Yahweh's anointed. Now you know who does this, right? Pastors. Pastors love to take this verse and say, don't touch the anointed of the Lord. I mean, don't say nothing bad about him. Don't have roast preacher for Sunday lunch. You know, don't point out his faults. Don't confront him. Don't run counter to him well by the way I'm not the king of Israel okay and I'm not the Lord's anointed in the sense that I'm a Messiah of any kind so you feel free I mean I'm accountable here I'm accountable first of all to the uh, presbytery second of all to the session third of all to every one of you in the whole church I'm accountable and therefore that's good but David recognizes something unique here David's being tested He's being tested. And one um, scholar that I read regarding this particular text argued this. He said, compressed in the book of Samuel from like chapter 23 to like chapter 28 is the preponderance of terms in Hebrew for good and evil. David is being tested and it's here takes us back, first of all, to the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the one prohibition that God had given uh, the, the uh, pair in the garden, Adam and Eve. 
and how Satan had come to them and questioned the word of God regarding that. Uh, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat of this particular fruit is when you do, your eyes will be opened, you'll have enlightenment, you'll be illuminated, and you will be as God's. God's afraid you're going to out-God him. So seize the fruit, and you won't have to be working this garden anymore. You can tell other people to do it. You can, you can command, you can interpret good and evil for yourself. You don't need God telling you what to do. And Adam fell for it, and Eve was seduced and fell for it, gave some fruit to her husband, he fell for it. David here is a type of Christ who is the second Adam who goes through the temptation in the wilderness. After he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, and Satan tempted him three times over a period of 40 days while Jesus was fasting. And if you look in front of the bulletin at the quote you will see, and the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this glory and their authority, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. As Yahweh's anointed, Saul's person was sacrosanct. Just as the devil had come to Jesus, tempting him to avoid what? His arrest, his crucifixion, his death. Satan says, boy, have I got a shortcut for you. If you'll just bow down right now and worship you, me, everything your father has promised you, I will give you right now. There doesn't have to be uh, uh, the crucifixion. You can bypass that. That's ridiculous. Why would you need to die like that? Why would you need to be condemned like that utterly? And here David, like Jesus, makes a wise decision given everything that was given here. But try to tell David's men, try to sell them on that. Apparently David had to be quite forceful with them. When he spoke to the men, it isn't merely just speaking here in the text. He tears them apart with his words when he confronts his men. Uh, so David tore apart his men with these words, suggesting that David had to resort to violent, threatening language to cool their jets. Many scholars think the word is too strong, but in my judgment, is right on. It's the writer's very point. David had to tear them up or cut them down with his words in order to prevent the spilling of Saul's blood. Meanwhile, Saul gets up and goes his way, oblivious to the fact that his premier enemy had just saved his skin. So let's rewind for a moment, push the rewind button, and go back to the cave. There sits helpless Saul. David squats down on his haunches watching him, Words flow through David's mind. See, I am giving your enemy into your hand. Was the providence, was that providence or temptation? And how does one discern the difference? It's a searching test for Yahweh's anointed servant. Only the principle of the sanctity of Yahweh's anointed answers the dilemma. That was not so clear seemingly to David's men. For David, however, it's one thing to have the promise of the kingdom how the kingdom should come to him was another matter. 
And Yahweh's will must be achieved in Yahweh's way, and that is the end that God had ordained that must be meet, uh, reached by the means God approves. David's men do not see this. They claim to have God sort of in their pockets and to know how he relates to this specific situation. It is so obvious and so clear. And as I told you, David's son, according to the flesh, the Lord Jesus himself, went through this very same test. And the kind of test is not confined to David and Jesus. It comes to us all of the time in our lives, again and again. It is the temptation of the shortcut. How even in our thoughts we often hanker to take it. We sometimes long to find a key or a major breakthrough or a decisive insight that will place our Christian living on some kind of higher plane where we are almost always above hindrance, frustration, and despair. Don't some Christians claim they have found the secret? When I was a young Christian, I was a sucker for any Christian book that said the secret of. The secret of fasting, the secret of prayer, the secret of the spirit-filled life, the secret of the promises of God. I had a library full of them. I don't own them anymore. You want to know why? Because I read them all, and it's still a secret. <laughs> but this is what happens. How we yearn for a shortcut around arduous, weary, time-consuming labor. It's called sanctification. <laughs> What discernment we need. No wonder the apostle left us this prayer in Philippians 1. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. We need discernment. But there's a, another thing going on in this particular text and there's an appeal to Yahweh's justice in verses 8 through 15. My Lord, the King, the shout must have brought goosebumps to Saul's psyche, especially after he turned around and saw David with his face to the ground doing homage. David gives no time for Saul to reply, but launches into an extended speech in which he argues the case for his innocence and enters his plea for Yahweh's justice. David's actions here are very similar to what we call the imprecatory psalms in the Psalter. And the imprecatory psalms are the praying down of God's wrath upon an enemy. But David here does so. He's not after vengeance. He realizes that vengeance is the Lord. Um, I don't think there's a Christian in this world that hasn't been in conflict with an enemy that wanted to read the imprecatory psalms and see them happen. If you hadn't done that, then uh, you ain't for real. But David here does it in a, in a proper way. David, uh, you're looking at me like you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, do you? Where, God, where, where the psalmist cries down upon his enemies that God would look at him and see justice, that he would provide justice, that he would bring, bring vengeance upon people who are making his life utterly unlivable and miserable and are threatening to him all of the time. Now, do we pray those kind of psalms today? And the answer is no, we do not, because we realize that God has revealed Revelation is progressive. God has revealed at this stage of the development of the kingdom and covenant, God has revealed that judgment will occur and vengeance will be issued at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ during the eschaton. 
or at the eschaton. And we will see that happen. And vengeance will be taken. And so David rehearses for Saul what all of us already know. The fact of providence, your eyes have seen how Yahweh gave, me into my, uh, gave you into my hand today in the cave. The voice of opportunism, and some said to kill you. The principle of restraint, I will not put, put forth my hand against my master, for he is Yahweh's anointed. And the proof of it all, did the bottom drop out of Saul's, Saul's stomach when David held up a chunk of his robe? I don't know what Saul thought, but I imagine he was shaken. Look, yes, at the edge of your robe in my hand. David could have been far more cutting than this. How can Saul seek to bushwhack David when there's obviously no harm, revolt, or wrong in David toward Saul? So he's confronting Saul. Yet David does not seek security in any change of heart in Saul or in any fresh promise from Saul. Rather, he cast his case upon Yahweh. May Yahweh judge between me and you. David is confident that Yahweh will bring vengeance upon Saul for him. Yet David doubly assures Saul, I shall never lay a hand on you. Such wickedness will not come from David. This seems to be the point of alluding to that old proverb. David may, however, intend the proverb, from wicked men comes forth wickedness in a two-pronged way. That is, as a vindication of himself. That is, uh, uh, he has no murderous designs on Saul. He's not trying to kill him. And as a condemnation of Saul, who is wickedly seeking David's life, What sort of person then must Saul be? Yet Saul is both wicked and stupid, for the king of Israel is trying to track down, according to David, a dead dog and a single flea. The import is that David not only will not, but cannot harm Saul. David then comes back to his original point. He has committed his cause to Yahweh. May Yahweh be the judge and decide between me and you. May he examine and defend my cause and give judgment for me by rescuing me from your clutches. Here then is the secret that explains David's waiting. The confidence that he has in Yahweh's justice or better in Yahweh who will bring justice for him. There will be vengeance. But Yahweh will bring it. David has no right to take vigilante action himself. The case is in Yahweh's hands. He will prosecute it. He will decide it in David's favor. Therefore, David will await rather than grasp Yahweh's gift. David obeyed Romans 12, 9, or 19 before Paul ever wrote it, though Paul derived it from Deuteronomy. <laughs> One qualification, leaving judgment in God's hands... And committing vengeance to God's calendar is no pale, sedate, anemic affair. Check some of the biblical prayers that I mentioned earlier. In your faithfulness, destroy them. Break the teeth of their mouths, O God. If you would only slay the wicked, O God. Some folks seem to reel in shock before such harsh and vindictive prayers. They never get past the words themselves, but are held captive by their own sentimentality. Certainly there are passionate, volatile, high-temperature prayers in the Bible and obedient prayers. 
And what is the prayer doing except what Scripture commands him or her to do? Namely, committing vengeance to God. The psalmist does not retaliate, but asks Yahweh to bring judgment to set things right. So why criticize him for putting feeling into his obedient prayers? I often tell people that one of the most important things you can learn to do as a Christian is realize you can go to Jesus and pour out your soul and tell him everything. He is the only high priest and being in the universe who can take it. You have the opportunity to tell him exactly what you're feeling and what you're struggling. Never do it in a hostile, irreverent, snarky way, but rather in genuine brokenness, tell it to Jesus. We want to tell it to everybody else. We want to find a friend or a neighbor and pour out our complaint, and we do it over and over again. And what I want to tell people is you've got somebody who understands more than you can know exactly what it's like to go through what you're going through. And he went through it successfully, and he did it for you. So go to him and unburden yourself and pour out your soul before him. We don't have to be fake Christians. We don't have to fake it to make it. We don't have to pretend to try to have the absolute righteous response to everything. Yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what the Bible says. But right now, this is terrible, and it hurts. And I want you to know it hurts. Do you do that? You have the opportunity to do so. God won't kill you. He hadn't killed me yet. <laughs> uh, he might at any time, but he hadn't yet. In 1661, the drunken parliament of Charles II sentenced James Guthrie, the Covenanter, to be hanged at the cross of Edinburgh. His head to be struck off and publicly displayed his estate to be confiscated, his children declared incapable in all future days of holding any office, possessions, lands, or goods in the kingdom. After the deed, Guthrie's headless corpse was placed in a coffin and brought into the old Kirk Isle, or Church Isle, where a number of highly respectable ladies prepared his body for proper burial. One gentleman present noticed that some of the ladies dipped their napkins in the blood of the martyr and they accused them of performing a piece of popish or popish superstition. One lady spoke up in defense. We intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. This is appealing to Yahweh's justice. This is the secret behind waiting for his kingdom and his righteousness. But finally, we have an assurance of Yahweh's faithfulness. After Saul recovers himself, he answers David. Saul's speech can be broken down very simply. What Saul acknowledges, verses 17 through 19, what Saul knows, verse 20, and what Saul wants, verse 21. In the first section, Saul uses the term tobah. Tob in Hebrew means good or goodness four times though one cannot easily see it in the English translation. Saul admits that David, the caveman, has shown him indisputable goodness. That's true. Then Saul declares what Jonathan had already said, 
Saul knew that David would certainly be king. Hence, Saul wants David to go on oath when he comes to power to not liquidate Saul's household, a protection that David had already sworn to Jonathan and his house. And David gives his word that he will not. What does David receive from this? Only another assurance that Yahweh's promise of the kingdom to him will most certainly come to pass. He only hears once more that Yahweh's word is dependable. But how can the words of David's enemy carry divine assurance to David? Doesn't the character of the speaker negate the quality of the message? Not necessarily. Sometimes the firmest assurances can come from the enemy. There was one West Pointer. This, this comes from an, a Civil War letter. And one of the generals was saying, There is one West Pointer, I think in Missouri, little known, and whom I hope the northern people will not find out about. I mean Sam Grant. I knew him well at the academy and in Mexico, and I should fear him more than any of their officers. I have yet heard of it. He is not a man, I mean, he is not a man of genius, but he is clear-headed, quick, and daring. U.S. Grant may have had numerous detractors in the North, but General Richard Ewell of the Confederacy was terrified of him and his confidence. That is David's situation here. He should be greatly encouraged and heartened that even his enemy confirms the certainty of the promise of Yahweh to him. If Yahweh can speak through the jaws of Balaam's ash, surely he can confirm truth through the lips of a deranged king. Now, some of you need to hear that. Some of you may have been brought to Christ through a person who later proved to be a false teacher or a heretic. It isn't the messenger that, that gives authority and power to the Word of God. And perhaps some of the things that person may have said were true and biblical and right, and God uses that in spite of the messenger. And I hope He uses me in your life in the same way in spite of all the flaws and struggles I have. But David is here wrestling with all of these things in his heart. And it should be doubly assuring that even when Saul recognizes David's coming kingship, maybe it was a day that the Lord had made, but for his own purposes. Now, to be reassured is one thing. To be stupid is another. <laughs> and so David has no illusions. Saul may go home. But David wisely doesn't trust him. He and his men get up to the stronghold in verse 22. So in this chapter we see how in this incident in the life of David, we see reflected for us one greater than David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took our place in the covenant of works and fulfilled for us all that the law required. He that sins against the law shall die. He shall be punished. But the Lord Jesus himself came to this earth not merely to be a great teacher. He was a great teacher. Not merely to be a good example to us. He was a good example to us, but that isn't the ultimate purpose of his coming. His coming was not just to heal people. He didn't heal enough people to make a big dent in all the sickness in the world. 
Well, what was this coming for? To save sinners. That's why. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save you from your sin. And that's what Jesus did. And so part of the temptation in the wilderness was Jesus, as the second Adam, doing and passing the test in the wilderness that Adam failed in the garden. And all of us are represented by Adam in the garden. All of us are born in Adam, and by faith in Jesus Christ, we are taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. And what Christ has done for us is then credited to us. All of his obedience to what God requires, which none of us will ever be able to keep for five minutes. All of what God requires of us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our enemies. We can't do that. We cannot save ourselves. <clears throat> and so what David's story here is pointing to is the ultimate one who would come. And do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Render perfect, sterling, beautiful obedience to everything. And then take our disobedience and sin to the cross. And give us freely his obedience and righteousness by faith. And so that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most miserable people I know of are the people who have come under conviction of sin and realize that they need to do something, but they take it upon their own hands and heart to save themselves. And so they try to be better, and they try to do better, and they try to repent, and they try all of these things, when the answer is stop looking at yourself, stop counting on yourself, stop relying on yourself, turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus. And then you will find Jesus to be more than you could ever hope or dream of as a Savior and a Redeemer and a friend and a great high priest for you. David, <coughs> in waiting and not seizing the kingdom, illustrates confidence, poise, and trust and reliance upon the promises of God. And as Dave earlier referred to suing, the Puritan talk about suing God. Our covenant relationship with him is built upon his promises. Some of you are praying for covenant children right now. Claim the covenant promises for your child to come to Christ. It's always a reason to do that. With that said, let's now bow our heads, close our eyes, and let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this story and its presence in the Bible. So much here. So much here for us to see. And we thank you uh, for the illustration of David pointing to one who is to come, the ultimate one, the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We love him. We thank you for what he did to save us. And I pray that every person in this room will turn away from relying upon anything other than Jesus and totally give their hearts in trust to him and repent of their sins. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm now going to take an offering. And since I didn't pray for it, that means one of you have to. And so, Bob, would you pray for us?
Amen. Thanks, Bob. As we prepare for the Lord's table, let's stand together and sing, What a Savior.
You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is his desire to be with us. He wants us to be aware of his presence, to spend time in his presence, to know he is there, and to have deep communion with him. I remember when I was a young preacher, uh, I used to preach a lot about how um, the, the judge in a courtroom would find a defendant guilty and sentence him to death, but then the lawyer, the advocate for the guilty um, defendant would stand up and say, uh, I'd rather not you punish my client, but rather punish me on his behalf. Send me to jail or kill me, and that's what Jesus did for us. But Jesus did so much more. Jesus, rather, is like the judge who pronounces the sentence upon us. Not only does he pronounce the sentence upon us, he takes that sentence upon himself, dies for it, is buried, resurrected to the right hand of the Father, and continues to want to be with us. You see, no judge would take you home to live with you because he knows what you're like. Jesus knows what you like, and he'd take you home with him. That's how he is. So I'm trying to take away the fact that though we all mess up, and we do, and some of us have messed up in a royal way. I mean, big time, big fat, juicy, technicolor, stinking sins. We've done it. Or we've just had secret sins, secret lusts, secret idols, whatever. But regardless, Jesus knows all about you, and he still wants to be with you. He still wants to know you. He still wants to show you his love. He's the best friend you will ever have. You'll never have a friend like him. Nobody can be a friend like Jesus. He's my brother. He's my friend. And so when we come to this table, what we are having the opportunity to do is to connect in a deeper way with Jesus. He takes these two signs and seals of his gracious covenant to save us and he uses those to communicate to us his loving presence. And when we do it in faith, we get what the sign signifies. We get it reinforced. We get it strengthened. We get a better capacity to grasp Jesus. We don't get more of Jesus. We've got him all. But we get a greater capacity to realize who we are and what we have in him. So what a great thing to come to this table. David, you pray for us. Thank you for this uh, amazing thing that we get to approach your table and, and, and eat with you in a, a beautiful foretaste of, of what is to come, of what you are preparing us for. Set aside now these, uh, ordinary, uh, this ordinary bread and wine uh, for its extraordinary use in uniting us with your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, who gets to come to the table? I mean, are there people who shouldn't? Are there people who ought to? Are there people who should never? The answer is, if you are a person who has repented of your sin, turned and trusted in Jesus, and you belong to him, and you're trying with all of your heart to be faithful and walk with him, knowing that you fall and you have lapses and you sin and you don't want to, but this table is for you. It's a word of encouragement to lift you up. It's a time for you to see Jesus face to face 
Repent of your sins and renew your relationship with you. It's all about covenant renewal, that great relationship we have with him. If you belong to a church, you've been baptized, you're a Christian, clear, don't have to be a member of this church, you are welcome to participate as you would like. Uh, At the same time, if you're a person who professes Christianity, but you know you're faking it, you know you're living a double life, you know when you get down to it, Jesus doesn't mean much to you, then what we would say to you is we love you, we've been there, and we hope that the Spirit of God will use this time that we're engaging in to fellowship with Jesus to show you the richness of what is ours in Christ. With that said, now will the elders come forward and will the deacons go to the end of the row? You will come forward and receive the elements and then when you get them, please return to your seat and we'll all take it together.